Well, we are continuing our Effective Kingdom Prayer Series today. Today we're doing continuing in Chapter 2, uh, which is Seven Keys to Effective Prayer, Effective Kingdom Prayer. And um, we started uh, that last week with the first key, and today we'll hopefully get the second, third, and fourth keys done, maybe. And uh, I do want to say that, again, James 5.16 talks about the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so if you read the reverse negative, it's very clear that there's ineffective prayer. And we are not talking about a set of formulas that you can manipulate reality with or God with, as is much of, much of Christianity today is if you confess that, you'll get this and, and so forth in almost a manipulative way. But we are talking about a lifestyle under God whereby he is pleased to dwell in our midst and pleased to give us favor. And, and, and a big sign all through the Bible of God's uh, favor is answered prayer. Now, um, I want to actually just even start by just making, helping our thinking a little bit. Uh, today you hear a lot, I just read an article this week, uh, by a pastor, a very good article, a pastor that uh, another friend who lives out west brought me to my attention on Facebook, said, I think you'd like this guy's books. And so I read some of his stuff. And uh, one of the uh, points that he makes is he talks talks about how uh, people are brought up in a moralistic uh, kind of Christianity today. And he's, of course, borrowing from Michael Horton, and he didn't use moralistic therapeutic deism. He just used moralistic deism. I don't know why he didn't want to include the therapeutic part. But in any case, he kind of attacks moralism as saying uh, a lot of, of us have been brought up in kind of a performance-based Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant, that says if we are a good little girl or a good little boy, if we... Uh, save sex for marriage, or if we don't do drugs, and if we go to church every week, if we pay our tithe or whatever, God owes us. Uh, to overcome that mentality, if there's one book I'd want to recommend, it would be Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. That was the mentality of the Pharisees. That was the mentality of the elder brother. But what some people do is they go too far in attacking that, that position. A lot of religion is based on the idea that I'll have God is my friend, and, and, and he'll be indebted to me, and I'll have, have more friends in the church if I do this moralistic posturing, if I don't really let them know how bad things really are, if, if I don't really confess my sins, and if I try to put on a, you know, come to the prayer meetings and pray in a certain spiritual way or whatever. And we expect that if, if, uh, if we do the right things, uh, we serve in the church, give tithes, whatever, God is in our debt and the people in the church are in our debt. And real Christianity doesn't work that way. We are made righteous by grace, working through faith, and it's a free gift of God, which we, he motivates us freely by his grace to acquire more grace and so forth. But if, as we walk right with God, you will actually live more righteous. And uh, it would be a mistake to, to not say that as a whole, that leads to a more abundant life that leads to blessing. If you look at Deuteronomy 28, which we're going to look at today if we get that far, uh, there are 11 verses at the beginning of the chapter that say, if indeed you hearken unto his voice and obey his commandments and so forth, the Lord will do these wonderful things for us. But he doesn't do them out of a sense of owing you. 
it's God's will to cheer up little children. It's my father's will to give you the kingdom. God actually wants to bless you in those kind of ways. The only problem that that leads to is if you get two, all truths in God are kind of balanced by counter truths. There's thesis and antithesis. There's paradox in the truths of God. And the truth of God is that one of the ways God blesses you is just like he did with Joseph. Joseph did the right thing in Potiphar's house, and he overcame the temptation of Potiphar. He, flee, he fleed youthful lust long before that verse was even written. He uh, knew that, that he should flee the youthful lust, and, and he escaped Potiphar's wife's attack, and his reward was he was falsely accused and sent to jail for several years. <laughs> then he stayed, didn't get bitter in the jail, but he walked with God in, in the jail, and he was thankful and gracious. He, he kept his righteousness and his integrity. He could have gotten bitter and said, this is the second time God has thrown me into a pit. And, uh, you know, what, what's wrong with you, God? It's no wonder you don't have more friends the way you treat the ones you got. He could have done that, but he didn't. And so he's walking tight enough with God to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh correctly. And his reward is both guys forgot to tell Pharaoh like he told them to do. <laughs> and he stayed in jail two more years. And uh, that was all part of, you know, so when God blesses you, I am not necessarily saying no one in your house will ever get cancer. I'm not necessarily saying that you won't have a, un, a, a harsh boss who is unjust and unreasonable. Um, God will bless you and afflict you with roommates, bosses, pastors, whatever your need is for him to to bring about the fullness of Christ in your life. But there is a place of blessing. And as a general rule, in the place of blessing, God will help you follow the first point we talked the whole message about last week. That is that you'll pray the will of God. He will give you the desires of your heart because he will increasingly make the desires of your heart the desires that he always had for you all along of his heart. And so you will increasingly want to pray the right things. And you will be increasingly an extension of his kingdom into the earth through your prayer life. And believe me, when it comes to birthing the purposes of God, there is no birth without labor or travail in the natural. And labor, prayer is the labor and travail of birthing the church. Uh I can, I can guarantee you there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the more God helps us become a praying people, the more amazing things to build the kingdom, which will include numerical growth, financial growth, and growth in coming out of worldliness into Christianity. You know, we have a long way to go in so many areas of coming out of worldliness. It's a dark time. And it's a narcissistic culture. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot that we would have to learn. I don't want to go into those things right now because that would take us too far afield. So um, look at uh, Roman numeral two real quick. We didn't cover this last week, so I'm just going to remind us. These are two goals that I've set for this uh, effective prayer series uh, that, that we would see Grace Christian Fellowship become a church community where there's a sustained prayer effort. 
to regularly remind ourselves that a lifestyle of personal and corporate prayer is a necessary prerequisite to witness God build a church community of kingdom-oriented people who are able to maintain and bring increase to an atmosphere of the manifest presence of God amongst us and out in and, and out and through us. To see that the redeemed kingdom community teaches, reaches an ever-widening group of lost people who become effective, mature, radically committed disciples of Christ and fruitful soldiers in his kingdom. That's what we're praying toward. That's what we're doing this series toward. Um, in case you don't know, we have uh, sort of three or four advertised prayer meetings. Friday Night Fellowship is about worship and then a sustained time of prayer. Before Friday Night Fellowship, there's a few guys that come together at 6.30 and pray for an hour. There's a few that come on Wednesdays at 6.30 and pray. And there's several that come together at 8.30 on Sunday mornings at, uh, and pray up in my, at my living room since the church is busy at that time. But uh, on top of that, no one, no one is saying you need to ask anybody but God's permission to start a prayer meeting in your house or, you know, if you live with four single guys and you can't get all four of them to pray, well, two of you get together and pray. <laughs> you know, and uh, simple as that. Uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Uh, husbands, if you look at First Peter one, chapter three, one through seven, and give some real thought to that, there's a special blessing when married couples live together in a certain kind of way and they pray together. All right, let's get into today's stuff, which starts in number two at the bottom. The second of seven effective, and again, this is a way of life, not a, a set of manipulative principles that if you do all these steps, God will owe you. This is just a posture of our life toward God. The second one is to pray in relational faith. Now, faith is a much bigger concept than the proof text of the scriptures can convey. Faith is always a relational term in the Bible. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, in his uh, chapter on conversion, when he covers faith and repentance, uh, he does a whole section arguing that we ought to throw away the word belief or faith completely from the Christian church today and because we've made it something that it doesn't mean. And so when we read that word in our Bibles, we're actually thinking about the wrong thing. And the right thing is, is a relational word. It's trust. You know, before your faith in the scriptures, this is something that, uh, that older traditions get better than new tra traditions, because Christ is the living word of God, and this Bible is the written word of God that, ex that is all about the living word of God. The Trinity, the, including the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit among us, our Heavenly Father, all of that precedes actually even scripture. Scripture came out of the Trinity. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. And the purpose of faith is not just to have an intellectual assent, as, as important as that is to the key ideas of the Christian faith, but your faith is in him. When, when the serpent deceived Eve, he attacked her belief in the character of God. And so many Christians are walking around bitter, confused. The re if you're not a zealous Christian, then you have a wrong picture of God in your heart. 
if you really know the Lord, you will be passionate for God. You will be nuts. You will be the kind of person that the elders have to take aside and say, we appreciate your passion and your zeal, brother, but let's add some wisdom to it. I hope we have to do that more often instead of trying to, you know, it's much easier to do that than try to light a fire under people. If you really see God right, if you really see what redemption accomplished in your life, if you really see the gospel right, you'll be a little bonkers from God. And, you know, someone will have to take you aside and say, when you're worshiping, please don't keep hitting your head on the, head on the ceiling. You're making a dent in the drywall, <laughs> you know, or, or, uh, or, you know or, or because we have so many other lackadaisical worshipers, when you worship that enthusiastically, you bring too much attention to yourself. So tone it down a little and pray that everyone else will tone it up a little. I would, you know, if, if we see God right, it's not just a matter of, believing the right doctrines, but it's, Paul says, I know him in whom I have believed, and I am confident that he is able to, to guard that which I've entrusted him until that day. The serpent says, indeed hath God said, and then he says, oh, God's trying to hold you back from something. He knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like God and so forth. You know, any person who uh, basically goes uh, ahead of the, w- the word of God in their life, the Holy Spirit, what, what their leadership in their life is confirming and, and kind of goes forth themselves and so forth, is just not trusting very deeply in God. That there's a blessing to those who wait. That there's a blessing to those who do it right. That there's a blessing to those who lay their Isaacs on the altar and lets God give them back. You know, when I see someone called to the ministry, I just tell them, build character, love God, and, and pursue a secular vocation and be really faithful in that. And let God surprise you by calling you into uh, maybe getting paid for your job, for your service in the church. So Jesus says this in John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name. Now, we think, we, we have so bastardized everything, and it's incredible sometimes. We think that to pray in Jesus' name means to, at the end of the prayer, go, in Jesus' name. <laughs> we pray. <laughs> to pray in God's name was to pray on behalf of God, to pray what he is praying, to pray, to care about what he cares about, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to be so intimate with him that you know what he's doing in someone's life. I can tell you that I have tried to bear fruit in some people's lives that came to no avail, or at least as far as I could see. I've other times borne great deal of, of faith, uh, fruit in someone's life, even when at times it looked like this isn't working, this person's not making any progress, and so forth. But the times that that's happened, it's because God, by his grace, has given me a trust in him that he's at work here, and to keep hammering the things of God into their mind and heart, and that God himself will cause it to bear fruit. Because I can't. Some people I've really, really cared about and really tried about have never made it much breakthrough at all. And I've had Bible studies with them and prayed for them and tried to counsel them, and they they remain unmoved in the things of God. Other people, uh, it seemed like, this isn't working at all. This person's not getting it. Uh, what? I'm just wasting my time here. And yet, there was a sense from the Lord that's not that that's not true. 
that God's at work here. And when God's the one that's at work, it'll whatever's born of God will overcome the world. Well, Jesus actually, after, I don't know why I don't have John 14, 15, and 21 connected to this John 14, 13, 14, and 15, because he says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You can tell if you have relationship with God when you want to go do that very thing that you, you know, most people have two or three areas in their life that are kind of make it or break it areas. And when you start getting overwhelmed for, uh, with discouragement or what you do with that, or, or when you want to be lazy at work or whatever, most people have a few areas that are their make it or break it areas. And your love for God is daily measured in those things. There's an old pastor saying that pride, money, and sex, they're like the poor. They're with you always. And every day, your response to your sexuality is, is a tells you where you're really at in terms of what you think about God and, he, and where you're at in relationship to him. Every day, your humility tells you where you're really at and what you really think about him. How much are you really dependent on living your life out of the power of the Holy Spirit and out of the nourishment of the scriptures and out of the presence of God? How much do you have kind of a proud, solical attitude? I got this, Lord. Like Peter, Lord, don't worry. I'll never deny you. I'm really a zealous brother. Uh, if everyone else denies you, I won't deny you. Peter was saying that out of his own solical strength and his own trust in himself. That's why I can always tell, I actually recently was with a Christian who wasn't from our church, and they quoted Philippians 4.13, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it was very clear that they almost didn't quote the second half. They, it was very clear that in their heart they were saying, I can do all things. And anyone who's walked with God and starts to get broken and, and learn how to walk out of God's strength instead of your own, their emphasis is on through Christ who strengthens me. So this is what I'm talking about with relational faith. If he who loves me keeps my commandments. Don't say, oh, I love you, God. I love you, God. I love you, God. And then you just do whatever you want to do, no matter what stop signs or, or, or yellow caution signs or whatever God puts in your life through the word, the spirit, and the church. If you just blow through those things, you really have to get humble before God and saying, I don't think I'm all that I, I, I think way too highly of myself in the Lord. Help me, Lord, get in reality. Relational faith is reality. Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Uh, you know what? A person who's being saved is a desperate person who's always drawing near to God, who's basically saying, Lord, I will bring forth really rotten, crummy fruit if I don't draw near to you today. A person who skips their Bible reading and their prayer times uh, regularly is a person who doesn't see, isn't really that convinced of their need for God. If you find yourself uh, skipping, getting before God and, and, and drawing near to him two or three days in a row, it's because your heart is haughty. And you think that the temporal things that you're doing are more important than finding the grace to do them unto the Lord. Jesus is able to make and, and, and save forever those who draw near since he is, always lives to make intercession for them. And frankly, it's those people. With, uh, there's another part of this chapter three is called five types of prayer. 
And the fourth type of prayer is called intercession. And you can study intercession just by looking at the great intercessors in the Bible. Abraham in Genesis 18 and 19, Hezekiah, Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 4, and so forth. Daniel, several, uh, two or three times in Daniel. Look at some of Moses, look at the great intercessors of the Bible, and you'll learn the principles of intercessory prayer. But uh, someone who draws near to God is kind of the first step toward praying effectively intercessory. And I'm not talking that you then beat God over the head. I'm talking you can't really pray the life of God into the earth if you're not seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places, listening to him. You, we enter in through the Holy of Holies, through the veil of Christ's flesh, which means we have to put ourselves on the cross and deny ourselves and humble ourselves and see our total need for grace. And as we walk out of the posture of Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But that, as we walk out of that posture, that's uh, when we basically become a conduit for the burdens of God. In fact, if it, one of the things we try to get through when we take people through the, the four teachings on the baptism in the Holy Spirit is that the promise that it's, you know, in John, and I'm sorry, in Acts 1, verses 3 and 4, Jesus makes it very clear that receiving the promise of the Father, which every Old Testament person would understand what that means, and being baptized in the Holy Spirit are one and the same. Jesus makes that very clear in verses 3 and 4. And so when that happens at Pentecost, when they receive the promise of the Father, it's that all God's people would be priests, and all God's people would be prophets, and all God's people would be filled with his Holy Spirit in an empowering way. In, in the Old Covenant, they were saved by faith, and they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Read Psalm 51. However, not everyone was had that second empowering experience called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a situation in the church today where most people have not received that. But biblically, that is God's will for everyone. God wants to empower you to look, so that your ministry looks like Elijah, like Christ, like Moses, like the apostles. And he doesn't, this is no longer for special people like priests, it's no longer for a special people like prophets or kings or the judges. Those four types of people had a tendency to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in a more charismatic uh, way in the Old Testament. But the promise of the New Testament, Joel 2.28, which Peter quotes in his response to when the people say they're drunk, as you suppose, and he says, we're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is what Joel prophesied that in the, it'll come about in the last days that I'll pour my spirit on all mankind. He's already saying that it's not going to be just for the Jews, but be, uh, unfortunately it took eight more chapters before Peter really got that. But he's saying that your sons and daughters will prophesy. In other words, it's not going to be just the, the priest or the prophets or the judges or the kings, but it's going to be every, every son and daughter of God is going to be a priest. Every son and daughter of God is going to be a prophet Every son or daughter of God is going to be a prince or princess ruling on behalf of and under his fatherly king. That's the, that's the greatness of the New Testament. And that's what I'm talking about when I say 
pray and pray out of living in the at the father's right hand seated in heavenly places full of worship full of thanksgiving flowing in god's power and spirit in the eye of his will not just settling for being in his permissive will way out on the fringes or whatever but pressing into the best in the heart of god for yourself and out of that you will see many 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 amazing answers to prayer john 15 jesus says if you abide in me i'm on the back page now and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you you are my friends if you do what i command you i wish i could go into more of that verse but that's uh that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about relational. We're not talking about faith is, yeah, our church has 10 doctrinal statements of what we believe, and I, I believe all those. When we recite the creed, I believe it. We're talking going beyond that, using that as a conceptual foundation to a relationship and a way of life. Now, conceptual foundations are important. You, you know, when you're married, you have a con, you have a covenant, you have an agreement between God and man. You're the, the the minister and the people of God, and even the unbelievers are come to your wedding to witness on behalf of God the solemnizing of a three-way covenant between God, man, and woman, and that is totally important. But it's what you live out of that covenant after that that's totally important. As we're going to see in the uh, second message today, or well, if we get that far, we might see it later in this message. I need to kick it in the ear. So let's go on to humility, a broken and contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. James 4, 5 through 10 says this, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, small caps is, is uh, the New American Standard's way of saying this is a quote from the Old Testament. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Most of us have real trouble there. That's just not, if you, if you were born since maybe uh, 1960, uh, you know, we have increasingly become a culture of independence, a culture of rebellion, and of course, that's deeply rooted in history and the, in the heart of man anyway. That's what the essence of the fall is all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us is doing our own thing to make it 60s talk in, or to make it biblical talk. Each of us has gone our own way. You know, when the in the '60s, when the bumper sticker and the the show called Laughing and all and the hippies all said, "Do your own thing," they weren't saying anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. They were saying the same thing the serpent said to Eve in Genesis three, as a way of life, do your own thing. And I'm that's probably the hardest thing for people in the church today is to receive Christ, walk with God, and then when your will and His will is crossed to actually trust him, to walk his will. We get manipulated out of it, talked out of it. Our flesh talks us out of it. Our friends talk us out of it. it, it we just don't stay. You know, we might start off, God's called us to fast once a week, and we do that for two or three weeks, and then, you know, hey, why don't you go to Chipotle with us, sir? <laughs> you know, whatever. It doesn't last. Uh Submit, therefore, to God, 
is a tough thing. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That follows submitting to God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That follows submitting to God and resisting the devil. But but surely that is his promise. If you submit to God and if you resist the devil, God will draw let you draw near to him. There's a uh, scripture that says the... The proud God knows from afar, and Derek Prince used to always say, and that's where he keeps them, <laughs> afar. And uh, uh, be miserable, mourn, and weep. You know, that's something we think it's supposed to be all, like worship should be all joy all the time. We, we wouldn't know what to do with a worship service that didn't have a couple happy songs and or whatever, or, or worship service where the presence of God dropped in such a way that people started getting on their knees and repenting and crying and, and mourning over uh, the fact that God looks down from heaven. And just like in the days of Noah, I, I think we're at a time where there's pockets of places where God is pleased. But I think there are a lot fewer and far between than we think. I think we think our Christianity is much more healthy than biblically it is. And there's nothing wrong with being miserable, mourning, and weep, letting your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves under the presence of God, and he will exalt you. Now, I don't have a ton of time, so I limit myself to what I can talk about in terms of humility. Humility is not a humble bumble. It's not condemnation. Condemnation is actually based in pride. I wish I had more time to develop that. I've developed that with lots of you one-on-one. Condemnation is something you must overcome if you're going to walk with God in, in, in the spirit and in joy and freedom. Condemnation is a most unhealthy thing psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, it's all about vague things and it's I'm a loser and it's expectations that I ought to have been more righteous that based on my own self. Conviction is the understanding that I've sinned in this way. It's my fault but it's also the understanding that I can only change by the grace of God. So conviction is usually about two or three specific things, and it's usually, it's very centered in God's grace. And when the, when the, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, Moses in Numbers, I believe it's 22, or number, no, I think it's Numbers 12. Uh, N- Moses said that now the man Moses was the humblest man in all the earth. <laughs> like we think that's a crazy statement. You know, there's actually an old joke that uh, we gave so-and-so the humility badge at the church, and then we had to take him away from him because he was wearing it all the time. But, <laughs> you know, but uh, we think of humility as this kind of self-flagellating, beating yourself down. But humility is just brokenness. It's having learned from the school of failure that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And frankly, if without the Christ who strengthens you, you can pretty much do nothing. You can sometimes muster the human appearance of right living apart from the grace of God. But it's actually what the Bible calls dead works that you need to repent of. The Pharisees had ways that seemed somewhat impressive to men. And that whole moralizing kind of way of walking with God, performance-based, sometimes seems a little bit impressive, but it's all for the wrong motives. It's all out of the wrong relationship. It's all out of the wrong, the wrong strength. 
it's all for the wrong person's glory and credit. Humility is living out of the life of God in such a way that you're glad to give him the glory and the credit. That when someone says, that's a great message, you say, thank you, brother Joe or so-and-so, and deep in your heart you say, oh, God, thank you. It's for your glory. I don't know the first thing about how to to relate to you or speak your word or or do anything. I you it's it's a living out of Him. Do you know that's why uh, when it comes to the ministry, business, marriage, uh, edu- good grades in school, education, li- living out after a lot of success is a deeper test of your character than living out of a failure and, a, and, a, and trying to get to a to stable or successful place. Because it, it, what happens is you have a certain amount of success, say academically or vocationally or whatever, and you just begin to, in your heart, say, I got this, Lord. And your desperation for him is, is not total and daily and hourly and all the time. Fourth, harmonious relationships. In the two, two, uh, two areas I want to focus on, these things all apply to business. They have, but I really want to focus on the church and in your family. Now, if you live in a single brother's household, they really apply to that, or a single sister's household or whatever. Matthew 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth... Uh, I, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So he, again, I say to you, if two of you agree, or sumfeo, that if you're living in harmony, if two of you agree uh, uh, on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Again, we, we tend to read these verses, and we, we go, um, Lord, you know, say, Edwin prays this, and then Sydney prays this, and then I say, and I agree with what they prayed, Lord. Well, that's good, <laughs> but uh, probably even better than when I disagree with what they're praying, Lord, or something like that. But uh, nevertheless, it really comes out of the way we're living together. And that's why the previous verses in Matthew 18 basically say, if your brother sins, go and talk to him in private. If he listens, you've won your brother. It's never about winning the argument. It's really about saving your brother. It always. And then he says, if he won't listen to you, take two or three others. And if they won't listen to you, take the elders. And the point of this all is, is that when someone is going the wrong direction, it really is our business. Do you know what? It was Cain who came up with the modern idea, very modern. Cain was a (laughs) postmodern. He really was a long time ago. Uh, But he said, am I my brother's keeper? Gee, I don't want to meddle or get involved. I just give money and let someone else take care of the needs. Cain was, uh, he couldn't be bothered. He wasn't his brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. Now, there's all kind of warnings in the Bible about not being uh, what the Greek is actually uh, uh, 
false shepherds or worldly shepherds, but it's usually translated busybodies. You know, you don't want to be going and meddling in everybody's affair. But let's say you're living together and you see your brother this or that. Yeah, take him aside. Say, hey, you can even, if you're not sure, you can, I always start with humility. I'm not sure, but it seems like this isn't looking good. What What's really going on here? But we owe it to one another to serve each other to walking godly together. And if there, again, if God is pleased with Grace Christian Fellowship, there really is a realm of blessing. It's just that I don't want to give you the moralizing thing that then God owes us and will necessarily get bigger right away or will necessarily uh, have more money or will necessarily have people stop hating us who don't know us, or something like that. That's just not going to happen. But what it, there will be a realm of fruitfulness and blessing that sometimes is hidden from other people. Other people will probably still say, eh, those people are turkeys or whatever. It doesn't matter because you will have changed Kim and Belinda's life or whatever. And... Um, Believe me, harmonious relationships are, are, are so important. Matthew 6 is, says the opposite of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, you go. Matthew 6 says, if you have sinned or your brother thinks you've sinned against him, you go. So that means you are under a moral obligation, if you think someone is offended by you, to go. And if they, they've offended you, you're under a moral obligation to go. So it doesn't matter who did the sinning. If there's any possibility that the relationship isn't clear, clean, crisp, and righteous, go and talk it out. And if we live that way, which we don't, I am so, I am, I get tired of, and, and I'm really getting kind of, kind of pissy about, uh, about like when people tell me other people's sins, I just start going, nah, nah, I'm not going to hear. Have you talked to them about it yet? Don't talk to me until you've talked to them. That probably didn't come across good on the CD or the audio. But, you know, it's kind of, you know, um, but it makes the point. Like, oh, I can't hear you. No, no, no. Have you talked to the person you're talking about? In the family, 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter promises that if husbands live with their wives in an understanding way, as with someone with a weaker vessel, she is a woman, etc., show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of God. And then uh, he goes on to tell uh, the wives how to win their husbands if they're disobedient and so forth. Believe me, if you are kind of a harsh taskmaster, nitpicky, con controlling, ungracious, whatever, uh, it will hinder your prayers. It's not how much you pray. It's what state you're in when you pray. You know, a lot of Christian teaching about prayer is like, you got to pray more, 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 more. Frankly, you do have to go to work. <laughs> 
and it would really be a blessing if somebody did the dishes around the house and took out the trash on Wednesday nights and so forth. And uh, you can pray without ceasing in the sense of communing with God, but you can't be at a prayer meeting eight hours a day. What you can do is be more effective in your prayers by where your relationships are at. I had somebody uh, a week ago who wasn't an elder or whatever, a week or two ago, called me up and said, gee, I'm concerned about the way you talk to your wife at your house on Sunday mornings or whatever. And I'm like, thank you very much. That is a good thing to be concerned about. And I'm just a brother in the church on, uh, when it comes to those things, and I've got stuff i got to work on, and, and I will repent and work on that. Do you see, you know what? That person could have said, well, they're a pastor, I'm not. You know, and again, I don't, the Bible says don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You don't, and it also says don't rebuke an older man uh, harshly, but appeal to him as a father. One of the things I've always admired about my daughter, Carla, is even from the age of eight, she could t talk about those kind of subjects, which I'm the kind of person who needs people to remind me of the many of those kind of things all the time. And she could take me aside and say, Dad, you were just talking to that young person, and they were, and you were a little too hard on them. <laughs> and I'm like, you're eight. The person was 18. I'm 50, 45 or something, whatever. I was 40 at the time or something like that. But you know what? I never did that because she actually did it in the right spirit and the right attitude. Don't fall into this, you can't ever go to your boss, or you can't ever go to a pastor in the church, or your parents, uh, but you go with a certain kind of humility. You go and say, hey, Dad, uh, I could be wrong here, but it just seemed like we should be more careful about our attitude here and there. You know, John does that all the time. He sent me a, an article uh, this past week that was about certain attitudes and handling certain situations. And he didn't say, Dad, you really need this. He just wisely said, I think you might like this article. <laughs> but it was like, I know what he's saying. <laughs> I'm a little stupid, but not quite that stupid. But uh, um, And it was very helpful, and I even put it into action this past Friday night. So... Um, Let's, let's just stop here. 